We welcome you to Bible class this morning. We are glad to have you here. We welcome our KFUO listening audience. And uh, as we continue our study of Hebrews, and we're going to pick up this morning in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. And now we shift from Joseph to Moses. And we have several examples from Moses' life. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. This is not so much a reference to Moses' faith, but to his parents' faith. That they were not afraid of the king's edict, and they they knew from the start that this was going to be a special child. It also refers to the fact that the midwives, who had been told to kill all the male children, were also unafraid of the king's edict and did not follow through on that in the case of Moses. So through faith uh, in the hearts of the midwives and in the hearts of the parents actually worked to preserve Moses from certain death so that he would, his life would be spared. His life would be spared. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. All right, so there's a lot here. When, all right, so there's a lot here. When Moses grew up, he refused to be identified with Pharaoh's house. And as you will recall, he went out and observed his fellow Israelites under slavery and actually killed an Egyptian who was abusing one of the Israelites. He would not identify with the Egyptians. The implication is this. He refused the treasures of Egypt because he knew that the treasures he was going to receive from God were greater than anything the Egyptians could give. Now, how did he know this? This had been a promise made to Abraham. And we have to realize that this promise had been handed down through the Israelites to the people. It was given to Joseph, it was given to Jacob, Esau. They knew it. 
So, Moses would not accept the earthly treasures of Egypt because he was waiting on a greater reward. Not a reward that he would earn, but a reward that would be given to him by God. Truly, uh, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. We see in Moses a type of Jesus Christ. He refused to be associated with earthly wealth and earthly things, earthly treasures. Christ was reproached, persecuted, mocked for not being what the world thought he should be. Moses would have been looked at as very foolish for not accepting the treasures in Pharaoh's house, but instead going out and being treated like the Israelites. So this is a type of ultimately the reproach of Christ, okay? Because he chose the exact opposite of what any normal person would receive because his faith rested elsewhere. It is by faith that he did this, not his own will. His own will would have drawn him to the riches of Egypt, but he was looking elsewhere. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So Moses fled Egypt. Remember, he fled after he killed the Egyptian. He fled Egypt. Okay? He fled Egypt. And notice the line, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. That applies to us. We haven't seen God. We haven't seen God. We see that which is invisible with eyes of faith. Now, certainly in the lifetime of Moses, he had a closer relationship with God. And at times, you know, he asked to see God. And God said, you can't see my face. Uh, I I will pass through the cleft of the rock and you can see my back. But you cannot behold, a sinful person cannot behold the face of God. So, We, too, see the invisible. And that's why the world considers us so foolish. Because we see it with eyes of faith. We trust in the promises of God. But the world says this is nonsense. Moses was in the same position, okay? 
He was in the same position. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. It took a lot of faith. When God says, I'm going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt, it takes a lot of faith to smear some blood on the doorposts and believe that that's going to stop the destruction. That's not what we'd expect. But that's what Moses did. Moses not only did it, he proclaimed it to the people and they. So it is by faith in the promise of God they were spared from the destruction of their own firstborn. And that was, uh, again, an act of faith in the promise of God. It also says specifically that he made this an annual event. Okay? It doesn't say it here, but it was done annually. Okay? To chase away the destruction, to remember what God had done. Okay? By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. God had proclaimed to uh, Moses that he was going to save them. When they were backed up with the Red Sea, there was a lot of people that said, well, we've had it now. It's very interesting when you read Exodus, uh, the Lord tells Moses, tell the people to go forward. That was before he parted the sea. They would have walked towards the sea before it was parted. And it took an act of faith. Okay. By faith it is. Now, notice... Then he contrasts, the Egyptians had no faith. What happened to them? They were drowned. Okay? They were down. They didn't trust the promises of God. They were drowned. Okay? So the great salvation event of the Old Testament is that the faith in God's promise that he was going to save the people. He was going to save them. And then he begins to move a little faster. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Okay? God fought the battle for Jericho, marching around the city seven times normally would have done nothing. God fought the battle in behalf of Israel. They were on the receiving end, faith receiving what God gave so that the walls fell. A complete 
and total act of God. And coupled with that, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is unique because in the midst of all this, you have this woman named Rahab, and she's a Canaanite. She's a pagan. She is not an Israelite. And yet we kind of skip over this. Uh, I want you to turn back to Joshua, where uh, Rahab does this. Joshua chapter 2, and um, what we have here is literally a confession of faith by Rahab, beginning of verse 8. This is, she is speaking to the spies. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is literally a confession of faith by Rahab. She had heard what God had done, and now she herself declares, you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So Rahab then believes in God, believes in the promises of God, and asks the spies for protection. Notice then what happens to Rahab. Not only are she and her family saved, they did not perish because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. But it goes farther than that because you read in the book of Matthew the genealogy of Jesus, Rahab, is in there. She is one of four women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth was a Moabite. Okay, so there are pagan Canaanites in the genealogy of Jesus, and Rahab is one. Okay, and it was because of faith. Okay, 
because of faith. She was spared and she was blessed. Now at this point, he, he kind of changes, um, he, he, he can't list everybody in the Bible, so he kind of starts giving a summary. And what more shall I say? Okay. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. Now, those are not listed in chronological order. But let's look at some of them. Gideon conquered the Midianites. It was in Judges chapter 7 and 8. Remember, he had a massive army with him, and God could it, cut it down to 300. And he still took out the Midianites. Okay. Barak took out the Canaanites in Judges chapter 4. So these are all from Judges. Okay. Jephthah took out the Ammonites with a very small band in Judges chapter 11. And of course, Samson did his thing in Judges chapter 16. Okay, So these were all during the time of the Judges, after they had inherited the Promised Land. Now, if you've ever read the Judges, the book, things just get worse and worse and worse. Okay, just gets terrible. But then he jumps to David. And of course, David conquered many armies. Basically did away with all the opposition that Israel had in that area of the world. By the time Solomon took over, there was peace in the land, and Israel did not have enemies. So David was great conqueror by faith. Samuel is listed because he's kind of the father of prophecy. Okay? But then he doesn't mention any more names. He starts in with a list of items who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. What's being referred to here is probably the reign of David and into the reign of Solomon. Through faith they conquered kingdoms, but they also had a form of government that enforced judgment and received the promises of God. Okay, so that's the first triple. Then it goes on. Stop the lives, mouths of lions. Who do we think of immediately with that? Daniel. Also, the next one. Okay. 
quenched the power of fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? So that's that. Uh, then it lists, escape the edge of the sword. The best application of this one is probably Elijah. Because during Elijah's life, Ahab and Jezebel did everything they could possibly do to have him killed. So that may be the best application to this one. And it continues. We're made strong out of weakness. That's got to be Samson. Okay. Became mighty in war. That's probably back to that list of judges, especially probably Gideon, who overcame the uh, Midianites with only 300 men, put foreign armies to flight, uh, probably referring to David, okay, because he did it so many times. Then verse 35, women receive back their dead by resurrection. Three come to mind immediately. The widow at Zarephath that Elijah prayed for and received her son back. The widow at Shunem that Elisha prayed for and her son also came back. And Jesus, for the widow of Nain in Luke chapter 7, any of these could apply. All right? Any of these could apply. Now, um, then it goes on. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Okay? And those we can't put specific examples to. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. We could make quite a list there, especially Paul, Peter, come to mind. They were stoned. Stephen was stoned. Okay. Sawn in two. That probably, that's the tradition of what happened to Isaiah. That the prophet Isaiah was cut in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. So you remember it's been emphasized throughout chapter 11 that the people of God lived in tents. They didn't have a permanent land. This is emphasizing it's even worse than that. They had to act as vagabonds. 
foreigners. They didn't even have tents. They were without home, homeless, okay, without home. And that went on, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And then an interesting comment, of whom the world was not worthy, of whom the world was not worthy. They were looked at as the absolute worst in society. And they were better than the rest of the world because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of their faith. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, all right? So we get a picture here. He's trying to summarize all of this, right? Not just the great heroes of faith like Abraham and Moses, but those who were simple Christians who sought to live out their faith, who sought to live out their faith. That's what they were about. Now, what does he say in summary? Now, you remember, he's trying to get these folks not to abandon their faith. They are questioning their faith. They have been persecuted for their faith, and he is trying to get them so they do not abandon their faith. And so he's listing all these things, and frankly, all the things that he's listed are worse than they had suffered. He is listing people that have suffered more than they have. Okay? than they have. And then verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Commended means that God commended them. They didn't commend themselves. They were commended by God because of their faith but they did not receive what was promised. Now, what is that referring to? Well, the children of Israel referred, uh, did receive the promised land, but way beyond that was the promises of God that they would receive eternal life. The kingdom of God, that's what's being discussed. They didn't receive the ultimate promise. The ultimate promise of God. The ultimate fulfillment. But that is spoken about in verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not 
be perfect. So what the author of Hebrews is saying, all the people that went before us provided an example of faith for us. And we were fortunate enough to live at the time of Christ. And that's what makes us all perfect. Ultimately, it's all the body of Christ. They suffered, they did not receive the end. But when Christ came, and now we live in that new, in that which is new, we, it is shared with all. So there is one body of Christ. God used them for a specific purpose. They didn't receive the ultimate promise. They will. They will by faith. But they died in this world without receiving it. They died in this world without receiving it. When Christ comes again, then both them and us will be made perfect and receive all that was promised. Okay? All that was promised. So he's telling the, the, the listeners in this book, now look folks, they believed in God and didn't even get the final promise. You know the final promise. Jesus has brought those promises and has assured you you're going to receive them. You are going to receive them. So are they. But they didn't get them in this earthly life. They didn't get them. Okay? So that's, that's his summary here. Now, he's not done because the first two verses of 12 tie this all together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are the cloud of witnesses? Everybody that the writer of, uh, author of Hebrews has just mentioned. All Believers, the picture is this, folks. He, he's picturing an athletic event. And you're in a stadium. You're in a stadium, a gigantic stadium. And all the people that have gone before us are surrounding the field. We're on the field. They are surrounding us. They are cheering us on. They want us to go for it. And the image is, they're in a cloud. We, we don't see them. We don't see them. But they're there. <clears throat> cheering us on. 
cheering us on to the home stretch. Okay? That's the image. They are the witnesses of the promises of God. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. All right, the, the, uh, the picture that's being drawn here is uh, athletes in the ancient world. Athletes in the ancient world would be cheered on, but athletes in the ancient world wore no clothes when they competed because they believed that that weighed them down, slowed them down. What's being likened here is this. The thing that makes it hard on you and weighs you down and slows you down is sin. Is sin. Not a specific sin, but sin in general. Get rid of it. Don't let it weigh you down. It keeps you, it, it makes you doubt God's promises. And then it says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The better word would be perseverance. Let us run with perseverance. And this word implies three things. Running to the end of the race, no matter how the hardship, how, no matter how tough it is, it's finishing the race, no matter how hard it is. Number two, the enduring of discomfort, pain, and hardships on the way. On the way. And finally, number three, a patient expectation that God is going to intervene. Okay. All of that is wrapped up in this word, run with perseverance. So it, it's not denying it's going to be hard at times. You just keep running. It, it's not denying it's going to be uncomfortable. You just keep running. And it implies that in faith, you know that God is going to intervene for you. He is going to bring you to the end by his power, by his strength. So you run the race with perseverance, endurance. Now here's, but here's the big one. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Looking to Jesus. We're not going to finish the race. We're not going to get through the pain and the discomfort and the hardships unless we keep our eyes on Jesus. The whole way. He is, first of all, notice it doesn't say Christ, it says Jesus, 
because what's being emphasized here is his humanity. Because he became like us. He ran the race himself. He went through this world. He went through the hardships and the suffering. Being perfectly obedient. He's not only the founder of our faith, he is the content of our faith. He is what we believe. He not only founded it, he's the content of it. Okay? He's the pioneer. He was to run, the first to run the race to the end the way God wanted it run. The first one to run the race to the end the way God wanted it run. The way God wanted Adam and Eve to run the race, but they didn't do it. He ran the race perfectly. He shares in our humanity. Okay? So that when he runs it, he is running it in our behalf as our substitute. When he runs the race to perfection, he attributes his running of the race to us. So God looks upon us through Jesus Christ as if we have run the race perfectly. And ultimately, the perfection is found in his perfect sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. So the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now what was the joy set before him? The joy set before him was first and foremost to sit at the right hand of God. But second was by sitting at the right hand of God, the glory of the Father, he could now share the victory, the glory of God with us. The joy set before him was of saving us and sharing the victory with us. That was his ultimate joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was willing to endure the cross for the joys that he was going to bring to all the people of God. To all the people of God despising the shame. It was a shameful death to die on a cross in the Roman world. Shameful. Only those who were the worst of the worst were crucified. He was willing to endure the cross for the joy, despising the shame that came with it. Okay? Despising the shame 
that came with it and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay? So look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy of saving you endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. He has completed the race. He has run it perfectly, and he has declared the perfect running of the race yours. Yours. That passage, Hebrews 12, 2, is one of the most powerful gospel passages in the New Testament. In the New Testament. And, and that line just keeps coming back. Who for the joy that was set before him. The joy of saving us. That's why he endured the cross. Okay? So often we hear just about he was the perfectly obedient son. This brings us into it. Remember earlier in Hebrews it said he is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not. Because he died for us. And it doesn't bother him a bit that there was shame and mocking and persecution because he kept on focusing on the joy set before him. The final purpose, the final joy. Okay? And that's how the author of Hebrews ends this long instruction about the faith of the people that have gone before us. And then he goes on to a new uh, topic, which we're not going to start this week, it'll be next week, but uh, it, will, it will pick up on this and, and apply uh, much of this to our everyday lives in uh, the rest of chapter 12. All right, questions, comments? Yeah, bud. Uh, the part of, uh, at the end of the story about the shining of the ground and the skin of the toes and the hiding we don't really see that in Scripture clearly. Would that might have been something going on in the Old Testament? It might have been. You know, no. we, we, we can't pinpoint that those things happening. We can't pinpoint people and events. So it might have been going on then. Uh, it might have been going on even before that. It, it might have been gone, it, it, certainly the intertestamental period, but it might have been gone even under uh, uh, certain circumstances when Babylon conquered Judah. It could have been going on. We just can't pinpoint exactly. Other things. Yeah, Donna. This is sort of sounds like after his death and resurrection, he's seated at the right hand of God. 
Well, you know, we know he was the Son of God in heaven. Uh, When we look at the right hand of God and study that in Scripture, the right hand of God mentioned uh, most of the time in the Old Testament is his seat of power. Okay? Now, Jesus Christ came for the specific purpose of conquering all God's enemies. Where he was exactly before he came, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, Whether seated at the right hand of God, he was only given that seat when he ascended into heaven, after conquering all the enemies. Well, that's tough. That's tough to see. But we can't say exactly when can't say exactly when. We can't say exactly. Um, We know that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, does appear in many places in the Old Testament under the name the Angel of the Lord. That's usually referring to the second person of the Trinity. But There's nothing said about him being seated at the right hand of God until he ascends into heaven and has conquered all God's enemies. Then we know it for sure. Then we know it for sure. Other things? Yeah, bud. Yeah. yeah. And artists, all of them, maybe one or two, uh, all clothed. Yes. That's how shameful. It was, and it, that's, that's our pietistic instinct, uh, instinct. You just can't show that. But that is true. That is true. Um, so it was shameful but he was still willing to put that aside to save us. And we're talking the Son of God here. Willing to be shamed for us. Willing to be shamed for us. Okay. Uh, We got two weeks left. Of course, we're not meeting Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve is on a Sunday. So we have the 10th and the 17th. We will finish Hebrews, okay? And after the first of the year, start something else. But we got two more weeks and we'll be done with Hebrews. Okay, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.